There's crispy, and then there's crispy, er. Try our new and improved Tyson crispy chicken strips. Crispy just got crispy, er. Everyone, you're listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows Podcast. I'm Deja Harrison. Usually, I'm coming to you guys from Grambling State University in Grambling, Louisiana, but today I'm in my hometown, New Orleans, because Mardi Gras is here. Happy Mardi Gras, everyone! Before we get into the show, let me introduce my co-host and award-winning sports columnist for the Undefeated, Mr. Bill Roden. How are you, Mr. Roden, today? Hey, Deja, I'm doing pretty good. We have a great lineup that includes three special guests today. First up, attorney and equity and inclusion strategist Ashlyn Johnson will join us to discuss the fight for equity and inclusion in professional sports. Now that Kaepernick has settled with the NFL, Johnson says there are more sports labor issues to deal with. Later on in the show, we'll catch up with two members of the inaugural Rodenfellows class, Donovan Dooley, who is now a senior at North Carolina A&T, has been covering Bennett's college struggle with accreditation. He'll share the latest on the situation. Isaiah Smalls is working on a master's degree at Columbia's University's Graduate School of Journalism. We'll hear all about journalism, school life, and any tips he has for folks who plan to transition from an HBCU to an Ivy League school. But before we get into that, today is Mardi Gras. Mr. Roden, have you ever been to a Mardi Gras parade? You know what? I have not. I've never been to the Mardi Gras. And, um... On, on the scale of 1 to 10, it was kind of like 10, 1 being the highest, 10 being the lowest, kind of like around, you know, 6, you know. But I don't know. I mean, you, you grew up in that, right? Yes, I grew up in it. I'm 21 years old. You know, I've been to Mardi Gras every year, minus the two years for Hurricane Katrina. But it never fails for me every year to get hit in the head with something. So I was never the type of kid to go up to a float and try to get something because I've, I was always terrified of that. And last year, I actually stood far away from the floats. Something still ended up hitting me on the head. You know, I think somebody threw, well, somebody told me how it happened. But somebody threw some bees off the float and it hit a tent. And the bead slid off the tent and hit me in the head, and I had a big hickey. So every year, I have I get a big hickey. You should start so wearing a helmet. This year, my goal is, <laughs> you know, this year is my my goal is to not get hit in the head with something. That's my goal every year, but this year I'm going to make it my duty not to get hit in the head with something. So, um, but since you've never been as a New Orleans native, I think there are five things that you should know about Mardi Gras. So what are these five things we're supposed to know? The first thing that you should know, you know, in case you didn't know, Mardi Gras is for everyone, not just adults. You know, you'll see toddlers all the way from the elderly trying to catch a throw. It's a family affair, but, you know, just don't bring the kids to Bourbon Street. And the second thing that everyone should know is Mardi Gras is just one day. And Mardi Gras is French for Fat Tuesday, but the two-week period that has parades nearly every day is called Carnival Season. Carnival Season ends on Mardi Gras Day. The third thing that everyone should know is every year after Carnival Season, the floats are taken back to Mardi Gras World, stripped down, and people immediately start working on designing the floats for the next year. Mardi Gras floats are worked on year-round, so appreciate the art and the designs of the float 
And you can visit Mardi Gras World located in New Orleans any time of the year to see the floats being worked on. The fourth thing that everyone should know is beads aren't the only thing that you can catch at a parade. Cups are thrown. Coins with the names of the parades on them are thrown. Toys and stuffed animals are thrown as well. And the highest demanded item is a decorated coconut. So if you get one of those, you're lucky and be sure to save it. And with that being said, if you have kids, be prepared and bring sturdy bags to keep the throws in because they're going to catch a lot of stuff. So you want to be prepared. Did you ever get hit? Did you ever get hit by a coconut? Yes. <laughs> yes, I've got I think I've gotten hit with in everything that ever came off the float before. Yeah. So um the last thing that everyone should know, New Orleans isn't the only place in the United States that celebrates Mardi Gras, but if you want the full Mardi Gras experience, bigger parades, the best marching bands and all of the king cake flavors, New Orleans is the place to be. All right. All right, well, I'm kind of excited about yep. it. Maybe next year. Yeah, hopefully we'll see you all here next year. Yeah, yeah. Let's move on to the next topic. Last month, Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reed settled their grievances with the NFL. Afterwards, journalists, fans, and critics of the players had a lot to say. Some asked if he was a sellout. Others wanted to know the details of the Kaepernick settlement, which is rumored to be between 60 and $80 million. Attorney and equity and inclusion strategist Ashlyn Johnson says much of the media's coverage of the settlement missed an opportunity to advance discussions about sports labor. She says Kaepernick's grievance was only one of many serious labor issues that face professional athletes. She's been working with the national sports organization like the NBA, NCAA, and the NFL to address these problems and is now ready to share some solutions. Ashton Johnson, who was also a former Division One athlete, is on the line with us today. Welcome to the show, Ashlyn. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining the Roden Fellows podcast today. Before we jump into your analysis, what does equity and inclusion mean, and why is it important, especially in sports? A lot of times when we talk about things like diversity, equity, and inclusion, we talk about them as though they're the same thing. Um, but there are subtle yet important differences. Um, for example, uh, when we say diversity, what we're talking about is the presence of difference, like the presence of different identities in a particular place. Um, when we say inclusion, what people are really talking about is how those people, like with their different identities, are they feeling valued? Are they feeling welcomed? But when we talk about equity, what we're talking about is an approach that ensures that everyone has access to the same opportunities. Um, so an equity analysis recognizes that there are both advantages and, and barriers that exist um, that kind of um, make it hard for people to access the same opportunities. Uh, so when I'm talking about equity, I'm talking about um, access, and I'm talking about advantages and, and recognizing the barriers that uh, limit people's access to opportunity. What was the labor mm-hmm. issue that was that was missed in, in, in the uh, the analysis of the Kaepernick thing? I mean, uh, the NFL Players Association they whiffed on that from the very beginning because they didn't really treat it as a labor issue. But what was what? Yeah. So what was the what what was the labor aspect that they missed? What's over is his labor dispute. What's not over is his social justice activism. And so in, in one sense, by having those conversations as though the settlement equals an end to an era for Kaepernick, it's, it's a misrepresentation of, I think, everything he, uh, he kneeled for. Um, 
But it does bring us to a really important point about why don't we talk about sports issues in the space of sports, such as locker rooms, the playing field, the basketball court. Why don't we talk about them as workplaces? Hmm. So why do you think some people don't look at sports as a place of work? Sports is something that draws us all in. It's something that we feel that we all have ownership and connection to. Um, And we see athletes sometimes as only entertainers because sports is a form of entertainment. So I think it's more so the, the seduction of that particular narrative of sports being this great equalizer that we, we don't see it as what it is for the people who are creating the space, a workplace. It's a place where they actually go to work. The conditions that they're in affect how successful they're going to be at their jobs. All right, right. So you think people look at it more like a privilege to be, you know, playing for such a, you know, a big league and on TV in front of millions of people and it's just, you know, just fun to them. Yeah, and um, to even break that down a little further, there are aspects of sports we see as a workplace. We see the owners as workers. Um, We see the front of the house staff as workers. Uh, But when it comes to the people actually doing the work, we don't see them as such. And I, I do believe there's also a racial component to it. And when you break it down even further, there's a, a gendered component to it um, when it comes to what labor we're valuing and what we're actually seeing as labor. Mm-hmm. What, what, um, well, that's sort of interesting. You're, the, the racial aspect being what the, the NBA, the uh, NFL, you think because it's the large number of participants are African American in those sports, you know, big time, you know, big time college sports, uh, you know, the NBA, NFL. You're saying because it's a large number of black athletes, they're not necessarily seen as laborers? Yeah, it's exactly. It's more seen as it's not work. Um, entertainment's not work. Uh, entertainment is, I guess, something that people do because they're talented, but they don't see everything that goes into. Like, this is a job. They don't see people studying their playbooks. They don't see people looking at game tape. What they're seeing is the end product of a lot of work. Um, And so what they focus on is what they're seeing on TV, but not all of the other aspects that affects the day-to-day lives of, like, thousands of people who work in the sports space. What's, like, the downfall of that, you know, of people looking at it just as entertainment, like, What's the downfall for that uh, as far as, like, for the athlete? Well, I guess because, like, the words that we use, uh, they they matter. And so when we're talking about a particular, like, space, especially um, spaces of employment, how we frame those conversations determine what policies we have. They determine how policies are enforced, and they determine what kind of rights people have. There are certain behaviors that we will accept in the sports space that we will not accept in a traditional workplace. Unequal access to resources is something that we don't accept in the workplace. Um, We don't accept the same amount of sexual harassment, um, the same amount of verbal harassment from coaches or fans. Like these are things that Mm -hmm. when we see happening to athletes, we consider it a part of sport. But what we're not thinking is, this affects whether or not someone is able to perform. It affects their mental health. It affects their physical health. In the same way that discriminatory behavior affects the health of everyone in the workplace. 
That's a great point. When, when you, so, you, you were a student athlete, uh, you played basketball, uh, did you see, when you were in college, did you see yourself as a worker, as a laborer, or did you see, you know, you, or, yeah, what was that evolution like? So I'm essentially saying sports in the workplace, not athletes or employees, because of the legal implications, especially for college players. Like, that's a whole other conversation. We could spend hours talking about right. whether or not NCAA athletes should be considered employees. But right. did I consider it labor? Was it a job? It was a 40-hour plus, like, 40-hour plus job. It was a lot of work. Um, and it's it was more than a workplace. It's 24-7. You're with your teammates all the time. You're with your coaches all the time. Um, and so it, it's different in college in that way that it is your family, it is your life, and you're going to school, um, and it's your lifeline because you don't make any money. Like, you eat your meals with your team. So I do think it's different, and I think the, uh, the levels of disparity and the uh, potential for abuse is different. Okay. Um, what labor issues do you think, you know, women in the WNBA face – um, so I guess when we talk about labor issues, a big one uh, when it comes for, for not just, uh, I guess for women in w, the WNBA specifically, it would be workplace conditions. Um, and also equal access to opportunities, especially visibility. So we know that in uh, the WNBA, they wrote a beautiful letter in the Players' Tribune about why they were, they want to renegotiate their players' contract. And they Everybody always goes to money, like they shouldn't make LeBron James money. Um, and they were very cognizant of the fact that they were going to be accused of that. But they are very clear that it's not about the money. What they want is equal access to resources to be successful to doing their job. One is having, like, their practicing facilities, especially off-season. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of times they don't have places to practice uh, a lot of athletes don't make enough money. They don't have like living wages um, in the WNBA, and so they play overseas. And we know how hard like year-round playing is on the body. Um, they also want to have like reliable transportation to and from games. Like you can't depend on showing up to a game. You don't feel as though like uh, you have the opportunities to form, perform and be seen. And then also equal access to uh, media coverage is. You want the, they want to feel like they're being invested in. And so even though participation in women's sports has increased, media coverage hasn't increased at the same rate. So it's, it's an equity issue for them. It's, it's uh, like I explained before, it's about having access to the same opportunities. So they're not asking for the same money. They're asking for multi-millions of dollars. They're asking for equal workplace conditions. Ashley, what what about soccer too? I mean, we brought up some, you know, the, the labor mm-hmm. issue in the WNBA. What about um, the labor issue in, in uh, women's professional soccer? Soccer is interesting because soccer was the women's national team, uh, and not soccer as a league. Like WNBA is talking as a league. This is the women's national team that has performed extremely well. Exactly. Yeah. They have some superstars on that team, and they ask some valid questions like. Why is there such a disparity in pay? Why is there such a disparity in our bonuses? In other workplaces, women have, they have maternity leave. They have assistance when they're pregnant. They didn't. So um, in a lot of, in their new deal, they actually got the things that they asked for. 
Um, and it was the same, it was pretty similar to the WNBA. They, of course, weren't going to get paid as much as the men, but they wanted more pay equity to reflect how much their sport has grown and how well they've done. Um, they wanted to be supported the same way that women are supported in other traditional workplaces. And they just they wanted more visibility, and they, they had earned it. Uh, I guess Venus Williams famously took up the cause of, of pay equity in tennis. Was that, was, it, was, was that sort of the first battleground, uh, the, the, the fight that Venus led? In a lot of sports, it is hard to measure whether or not there is um, equity in the sense that we traditionally measure it, and that's numbers to numbers. But with tennis, it's sponsorships, it's winning, it's a, it's a solo sport, sponsorships, it's winning purses. So you can compare apples to apples for that one. And so, yeah, Venus uh, did make a lot of headway and was kind of one of the, the first pioneers when it came to equal pay for equal play. Underscoring that the measurement becomes slightly more complicated when it's a team sport and their contracts are negotiated differently. Um, And you're comparing kind of apples to oranges at times when it comes to um, what the value of someone's labor is. Uh, How optimistic are you that, A, the view of of athletes as as people in a workplace going to change diversity versus inclusion. How confident are you that this is all going to mm-hmm. change? Um, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the highest is in confidence. I am about a 5 that mm. the view of sports as a workplace will change without people who are writing about it being intentional about referring to it that way. However, if there's not a desire, like if people don't want their, uh, I guess, kind of like magical illusion about sports to to be undermined, they don't want to hear about sports in the workplace. However, when it comes to equity, uh, inclusion, and diversity, I am extremely optimistic that um, we are moving to a place of equity. Um, I've seen in the last at least five years several sports leagues be extremely intentional about shifting from a lens of diversity, which is just representation, to inclusion, which is making sure that people feel valued to an equity lens. Um, It's starting with the trainings that they're having front of the house, and it's convincing them that those front of the house trainings um, with their executive staff should also be applied to their programs in the community, too, Mm -hmm. and for their athletes. And so um, a few leagues, especially the NBA, are, are speaking more um, through an equity lens. Hey, uh, uh, before we let you go, um, uh, Ashlyn, the great Ashlyn Johnson, uh, <laughs> I just want to get back to the cap, the Kaepernick thing since, you know, you guys slapped me mm-hmm. around on it. But what what does, uh, but what does the reaching, uh, the so-called non-disclosure settlement mean? A, what does it mean? And what do you think it means for Kaepernick? It is standard. Um, in any employment dispute, it is standard that most things don't go to trial. Um, so it's standard that there's going to be a settlement. And a part of that settlement is usually a non-disclosure agreement. Um, it's a way that both sides can move forward. So it means it's, it's beneficial to settle on both sides because somebody like Kaepernick gets to have his life back um, in a way that he can focus on the thing he wants to focus on. Um, And then 
whoever is doing the settlement it gets to also kind of know where they stand and get to keep their reputation intact. Um, so we want to know more about what happened because we've been so invested um, in Kaepernick, but when it comes down to it, this is what happens at the end of employment disputes, a non-disclosure agreement and a settlement. Do you think he plays again? It depends on whether or not it was negotiated by his lawyer. Um, lawyers have different strategies about whether or not you should go back to your place of employment Okay. after uh, a labor dispute. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of interesting you mentioned at the end, Ashton, because that is a labor issue, or or, or that mm-hmm. that is part of this, of whether whether an employee, uh, once they settle, yes. is allowed to go back to work. I mean, what's the norm? Usually lawyers do not recommend that you go back to a place of employment, because if someone has spent the time and money to try to prevent you from um, doing your job, that will not change or get better after you settle a case. And remember, when you're an at-will employee, you can be fired for any reason as long as it's not a discriminatory reason. People can find a reason to fire you. So unless everything has changed in the situation where the actors who were discriminating against them are gone, it just makes it extremely difficult to... um, to, to thrive in a workplace that you've already accused and potentially established as being hostile. Interesting. Well, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Except the hostility and in this case wasn't the... Here's the thing, though. Uh-huh. Most employees in these cases want to go back to work. And, and he they said so. He said as much, right, through his attorney. It's, it's always the case. It is always the case that they all want to go back to work because they have internalized any criticism that has been made against them. The employer always says... It's your performance. So you want to go back and show, I can perform. But it's always, not always, I, it's, it can and, and it can be pretext. You, so most people that are in these cases want to go back and show that they can perform. Usually lawyers advise against it. Hmm. Well, so it's a very emotional response. Yes. You yeah. spent your whole life working for something. You want to do it. Yep. And you might not be willing to accept that forces are preventing you from doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll be interested to see this. And uh, I'll also, uh, I'll be uh, very uh, intrigued to, to see uh, your writings on the subject. I know you're very passionate about it. And uh, I'll be, I'm looking forward to seeing you write more about it. <laughs> Yes, we're going to end it off on that note with Ashlyn Johnson. Thank you so much for coming. Much of her career has been spent working with social justice communities, advising sports leaders, and working in leadership roles in advocacy organizations. Her work leads her to the look at the data around the intersections of race, sexual orientation, gender identity, health care, sports, and faith. Thank you again, Ashlyn, for coming on the show. Again, thank you all so much for having me. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows Podcast.
The Rotor Fellows Program is a year-long program that trains student journalists at HBCUs to produce multimedia content for the undefeated. Once you leave the program, we try to stay in touch. Fortunately, two members of the first class of fellows, Donovan Dooley and Isaiah Smalls, are with us today. Welcome to the show, guys. How are you guys doing? What's going on? Doing well, doing well. That's good. That's good. We want to hear what you both have been up to since you left the program, and then we're going to get into your predictions for the NFL draft picks. But let's start with Donovan first. Donovan, what have you been up to? Man, that's a great question, guys. Thank you guys so much for having me on. It's always a, it's a pleasure to come back and speak on the Road no Development Podcast for everything that you guys have done for me. Uh, well, tell us, me, what is what uh, is that, Donovan? <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with no, Go ahead. Go ahead. Donovan. Right? Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> about that, I ain't gonna get I don't get too much detail about that, you know what I mean. But um, for me, for me, I've just been um, up doing some independent work, working on my own uh, publication called TrueBull.com. That we're basically been doing a lot of good work of publishing out stories that are transpiring on campus um, about college students. So uh, that's basically the main thing I've been doing. I've also been continuing to hone my skills as a journalist and doing some freelancing for the undefeated still. So that's a little bit of what I've been up to. It's nothing like what Claude's been able to do. Nah, you know, you're blowing a, me out the water. You're blowing me out the he's, water. Nah, you're in the stooped. <laughs> you're in the stooped um, Ivy League man now. <laughs> yeah, so tell us about that, uh, Claude Isaiah Smalls. What, what have you been up to? And, you know, you're here in New York in studio. Yeah, uh, so I've, like I, like they said, you know, I study at Columbia Journalism School now. It's It's been a great experience, really just learning how to, report you know going out in communities i covered the west african community in harlem uh for like the first semester then i transitioned to doing writing about the arts and some video work so i got to you know work on my reel and stuff like that i actually made honors in writing about the arts so oh, wow, great yeah I'm a, great yeah i'm pretty great. nice great so congratulations <laughs> i appreciate great. that it's all it's all you you said you were pretty nice yeah i'm pretty nice, right, you have to you pretty real. nice. <laughs> i'm pretty nice so, um, and then now I'm taking covering <laughs> sports and covering race. So it's been a heck of an experience. Mm-hmm. And I owe it all to you, Mr. Roden. So thank you for that. Right, well, thank you, man. You, you and Donovan. Oh, that was sweet. Yeah. What, 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 you know, we have Deja on the line. What can you share with Deja, who actually broke a story herself? Well, she, she didn't break the story, but when, um, Kyla Hill. Yeah, Ch- uh, Kyla Hill. Yes, Kyla Hill. Kyla Hill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kyla Hill. Yeah, double. Yeah, she got it. She got the second. Con- tri- uh, and okay. Deja was right there. Oh snap! She beat That's the AP. Up. She beat the wires. On wow. Yeah. Okay. But Shout what out can, to you. What, yeah, but what, what guys can you? What, what can you guys share with Deja? So maybe something you know now that maybe you didn't know a year and a half and ago. A year and a half ago. I think. Yeah. No problem. Go, go ahead. ahead. You want me to go? go? Ahead, I think make the most of your opportunities. Yeah, like. uh and don't forget to stop and smell the roses because, you know, you're going to do some really amazing work and be in some really amazing spaces. And so, you know, of course, you got to, you know, produce some high level content, but also don't forget to, you know, realize that, yo, like I'm actually doing this, like enjoy yourself um, because, you know, if you're not enjoying yourself, then you're not going to produce good work. Yeah, definitely. To piggyback okay. on what Isaiah said, you know, just just continue to 
um, make sure you know where your feet are. You know, I mean, I think a lot of times that people, whenever they get like opportunities that are as big as this, which are, you know, maybe think about the next step, you know, and the next step in their careers or the next step in, in their life. And one of the things that I think we were really successful in being able to do for to be able to produce such good content, we were able to stay where our feet are and just learn and be a sponge and absorb everything um, every step of the way. I think that's really the most important key to to the program, you know, just being able to learn, like, because obviously you're not going to know everything. And but by the time you end it, you'll know close to everything, but not <laughs> exactly everything. Yeah. Um, so you're gonna, so just be able to make sure that you're a sponge and you'll be able, you're very teachable and very coachable and, and they'll help you get you where, to where you need to be. Yeah, to piggyback off of what Donovan said as well, don't be afraid to make a mistake too, because I made a lot of mistakes, you know, as a Roden fellow. You but, did. Yeah. <laughs> you did. <laughs> yeah. Dang, Donovan. It just depends on which mistakes you make. <laughs> yeah. And exactly. when, and when you make them. Yeah. Yeah. Under the bus. I'm just saying, I want to throw I want to throw Isaiah under the bus because they know because he, he knows nobody got trouble more than I did. So it's okay. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> nobody got trouble more than I did. So it's okay. So yeah, don't be don't be afraid to make those mistakes oh. because at the end of the day, like this is still like a trial program. So don't be afraid to make mistakes, but just you have to learn from those mistakes and don't make the same mistake twice because that's how you get fired. So gotcha, gotcha. Okay, thank you guys so much for that advice. Let's move on to the next topic. We've been following Bennett College's struggle to keep up its accreditation since it was first announced that the school was in trouble. Donovan has been following the story for the undefeated, and last week he reported that Bennett will actually maintain its accreditation for the time being. This news comes after the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools Commission on Colleges, that's the Accreditation Commission, denied Bennett accreditation last month despite the fact that the school, which was the first all-women's HBCU, raised $9.5 million. Amazingly, Bennett was able to maintain its accreditation by filing a restraining order. So what, what can you tell us about that, Donovan? Yeah, so it's really an interesting type of story. It's kind of like a perplexing situation they have going on there with their accreditation. Um, as most people know, the decision to um, not give not give Bennett College's accreditation back uh, was notified. They notified the school um, on February 18th. Uh, the public announcement was made on February 22nd. Um, and basically what they said was that they didn't feel like the – nine and a half million dollars that Bennett College raised was enough to prove that they were able to be sustainable in creating uh, financial resources from themselves going down the line. Um, and it's, it's a very interesting case, obviously, that, you know, Bennett has filed the lawsuit and the temporary restraining order um, to be able to keep their accreditation for up to two years now. And in that time, they'll, they'll seek to get they'll seek to get accredited um, by a different accrediting body um, called tracks. Um, but it's really the thing that's so interesting about this story is Bennett College was a college that was projected to be on the come up, um, actually, from from their scare. Obviously, with the new president coming in, President Dawkins, she had taken over approximately two years ago. And in that time, enrollment rates have increased, um, retention rates have, re- have increased. They have 3,500 prospective students that are looking to come into the college in the fall, um, and they have their debt that is um, their debt has been deferred for uh, the next couple of years as well. So there, there are colleges in a pretty good 
not I wouldn't say pretty good, but they're in an upward swing uh, financially from where they were. So which which made the which made the decision from their previous accrediting body a little bit perplexing um, to me. Um, however, another thing that's been going on with Bennett College is um, I think the decision has weighed kind of heavily um, on their campus. Um, tensions have kind of ri- have kind of risen since the announcement. Um, their SGA president. Alexis Nicole Branch actually uh, made a petition asking for the the firing of their VP of Finance and Business, Leroy Summers Jr. Um, and she said that for all the for all the students who signed the petition, if Leroy Summers was um, not fired by March 11th, that she and the rest of those students would actually resign. I mean, would actually withdraw from the university, mm. uh, which I thought was extremely interesting considering. Um, Everything that had gone on at the universe at the at the college, so it's been it's been a whirlwind. It's been a whirlwind for Bennett College the last few months, especially, um, and so that's just kind of where we are now. Um, the, uni- the the college definitely told me that um, they had no comment at this point in time, but according to Branch, the SGA president, she said the school has notified her that Leroy Summers has been put on administrative leave while they yeah. investigate um, oh, his findings. So it's. It's, it's an interesting predicament they got going on there. Um, the, their new accrediting body tracks will be on campus March 14th to check out the school. And Bennett has already asked for an expedited process in gaining um, accreditation from tracks that could take up to a year-long process, um, considering everything goes well. So that's really where Bennett is, is at right now. Great reporting. So you said the um, restraining order will last a year, right? The restraining order could last up to two years, um, and that would give them the time to get the um, accredit- accreditation from tracks. their second accrediting body. Have you spent much time there on, on campus? Um, I have. Uh, when I went to interview President Dawkins the first time, uh, I spent a little time there on campus, and I was also out there for the, um, the Bennett College fundraising party that they had they threw on campus one time. Um, and it's kind of interesting, Mr. Roden, because the school itself doesn't look like a school that would be in an accreditation scare. Like, everything yeah. seems to be running pretty normally, you know? You know what I mean? Like, there's nothing, no really dilapidated buildings or, um, you know, anything like that going on, going on around the campus. It's kind of it's kind of weird when you go on there and kind of see, kind and you know the situation with their accreditation. It doesn't really show it um, on the outside. So for those who don't know, why didn't the SAC, SCOC not restore Bennett's accreditation despite, you know, them raising nearly $10 million? Yeah, that's a good question. That's kind of the question everybody's been, you know, asking, you know, since the, the, since the decision came down. And from what I can tell you is the, the first accrediting body, um, I just call them SACS, with the COC, at the end, basically what Sachs said was that with the nine, with the nine and a half billion dollars, they still did not feel that Bennett College showed them significant and pertinent information to be able to, to be able to show that they would be able to sustain that level of, uh, financial, financial wealth moving forward to run a college, um, that would be accredited by Sachs. So. I think that had this just in my opinion. I think that had a lot to do with um, how the situation was 
before the actual Stand With Bennett campaign came about that raised $9.5 million. Um, in my estimation, this is there's no reporting behind it, but just in my estimation, I feel like the, the accrediting body said that we don't know if Bennett College will be able to consistently raise these type of funds without the publicity of the Stand With Bennett campaign that came in December. Uh, just switching gears, I know that that's another transition, switching gears, but Isaiah is here in the studio. What, what shape is Morehouse at? When, we, when you were, actually, when you were a fellow, Morehouse was going through some yeah interesting changes, too. Yeah, I think I think they're in a much, much better place. Uh, there's some finally some stability at the top um, with President Thomas, and I think he's going to usher in a new, a new regime. Because one of the issues with President Wilson was that he was never there. Um, he did do a lot of good stuff in terms of fundraising stuff, but he was never physically on campus. And I think one of the biggest, you know, pluses of going to Morehouse is you want to be able to see your president interacting with students. So I think that's something that Thomas is definitely um, differs in a good way. He's I've seen him just from, you know, the short amount of time that he was actually there, that I was there on campus. And, you know, it was his relatively new uh, tenure. He was there i saw him actually a lot more than i ever saw wilson um and that's and i think that's good because i mean it allows students to develop that face-to-face uh relationship with their president that's really big at morris college so i think they're in a i say all that to say i think they're in a really good place now and one interesting note to one interesting note to piggyback of what isaiah said morehouse is actually the original brother school of bennett (laughs) so yeah 100 the um throwing them coins in there have you been throwing some money that way yeah. I don't know about all that. <laughs> right, like, yeah, I don't know about I don't know how I don't know about how many coins they throw in Mr. Roden, but there has been some some support from from Morehouse College in, in Atlanta for Bennett College's situation. And I know um Papa John's owner donated money. Do you know why, you know, he wrote I mean he donated money? Um, I don't know why um Papa John's decided to donate the five hundred thousand dollars. Um, for Bennett College. However, I do know just with the history of Papa John's and how um, controversial, to say the least, um, their, their history, their recent history has been with um, with uh, with black people and people of color. Um, I think this was a, this was a calculated plan for them to donate this money to Bennett College in order to you know get some favor, go come back and get some favor in the black community and and with people of color. Um, not. Yeah, Donovan, I know you, um, in your article, you wrote over 170 people or organizations, you know, donated to Bennett College. Who are some of the bigger names that donated? Um, okay, so some of the bigger names that donated was um, the AKAs donated, Alpha Kappa Alpha. They donated, Alpha mm-hmm. Phi Alpha donated. I think the Deltas donated as well. Um, and a lot of faith-based organizations that donated um, also, another big another big donor was um, High Point University gave a million dollars to Bennett and actually started a a challenge a High Point University challenge to raise money for Bennett College and so that was that was big that was really big for them because people don't really know like before um, February first with the um, the deadline that Bennett College gave itself um, a couple of days before that they only raised like three million dollars. Yeah. So they were really in a in a in a bind there initially with a couple of days left to raise the money, and then High Point came, comes in and gives them the one million, and then another donor comes in and gives them a substantial a substantial donation as well, along with the High Point challenge. As of February fourth, when they submit their appeal, 
Bennett College had raised $8.3 million, and so that's what they presented their accrediting body with at the time. And mm-hmm. up, to, up, to, up to this day, they now have $9.5 million that was raised in the Stanley Bennett campaign. So obviously it was disappointing for the decision from the accrediting body, but Bennett College can be extremely proud of the donating efforts that that they were able to pull off in just like a little over two, just just like around two months, um, you know, to be able to raise nine and a half million dollars is really something substantial as well. So, what does that mean for the new students? Well, the students that you know are trying to enroll for the fall semester and you know the years to come. Right. So basically, what that means for all students, really, um, the school will still be accredited. So it will still be an accrediting school, which means they'll still be able to um, take out loans to go to school there. Um, their classes will still mean something. They'll, their graduation, their degrees will still mean um, something in the eyes of employers. Um, so they'll still have the benefits of being accredited for the, up to those for those two years. Well, thank you for that, Donovan. And I read the article. It was a really nice piece for the undefeated. Appreciate that. I appreciate that. Okay, let's get Isaiah into the conversation. Isaiah, you mentioned that you're doing well at Columbia and you've only and you've been there for nearly a year. What are the biggest differences between your time there and at Morehouse? I think just being a primarily white space was the biggest difference. Um, for me personally, like I'm an introvert, so I remember the very first... What? I'm an introvert. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. You, I mean, you know me, so, like, I'm obviously going to open up more right, to you. But, right. like, in in settings where <laughs> I don't know people, like, I'm very introverted. So I remember the very first day I walked in to the, I think it was the World Room, and it was just full of people. And I just, like, remember being like, what am I doing here? <laughs> and so I just grabbed a bagel and, like, just sat in the corner for a little bit um, just because I needed to, like, I guess, psych myself up. Uh, for being in those spaces. So I think one of the biggest things that, you know, the biggest differences, like you said, was being in a primarily white space and feeling that, I guess, anxiety um, from just being there and not really knowing, you know, if I'm accepted or if I'm, you know, there just to fill a quote or something like that. Hmm. What, what, I mean, so what's that process? I mean, when did you, I'm assuming that you got over that yeah, yeah. until you realized you belong there yeah. and all that kind of stuff. What was that process like? Because I guess I'm assuming at a place like Morehouse or A&T or any of our schools, yeah. I guess there's a, you always wonder about whether you belong anywhere. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, how, how long did it take you to kind of get over that and realize that you were just as talented as anybody else? I think once I realized that, like, I actually have a lot more experience than a lot of the people there, I think that, you know, was a, a source of confidence for me. And then from there, I think being able to speak when I felt uncomfortable um, I pushed myself to do that. I remember we went to the Tenement Museum, and it basically explored four families. Um, there was, uh, I think, one Polish family, a Puerto Rican family, a uh, Chinese family, and one more family. Um, but I say all that to say none of them are black, right? So I remember being at the, you know, we went through it, and I'm kind of like, I guess, trying to find my sense of, you know, representation there. And so at the end, you know, we got back to Columbia and they were asking for people's um, opinions on it. And, you know, I waited a little bit and then I just raised my hand and said, I didn't feel represented at all. Um, And I think being able to speak when you feel uncomfortable is really big. And then ever since then, I think I've been able to open up more and, you know, get friends and stuff like that. 
But when when do you when do you graduate? Uh, in May, wow. May twenty fourth. Wow, yeah. it's right yeah. around the corner. Yeah, Yikes, yeah. man. Yeah. Whoa, yeah. so what do you what do I'm, and this is for you too, Donna. But what do you guys um, what's sort of next step? What are you, what are you planning? So one of the things that they keep pushing on us is like getting an internship somewhere else, and then you know working your way into the newsroom via that way. And I think. Like that's that's fine, all fine and dandy, but like I paid a lot of money to come here, right. so like I want a job. Right. Um, so I think I'm still exploring my options. Um, I'm still in the process of looking for places and stuff. But one of the things that I realize is like there's not a lot of jobs in sports, specifically for like writing and or like doing video production. And so I think I'm gonna have to, I guess, expand my expand my horizons a little bit, which is one of the reasons why I came to Columbia because I wanted to see like, hey, um, you know. If you're gonna pursue this culture route, whether you're reporting about fashion, um, music, movies, television, stuff like that, I wanted to, I guess, be, be confident in that. And I think, you know, getting honors in my covering arts class and, you know, talking with the professor, the professor really likes me. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, I think he really expect, respects my opinion, um, in terms of like the arts. I think doing that, you know, it, it, it gave me, you know, a sense of, a source of confidence, um, and, you know, maybe not going the sports route. Great, 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 brother Dooley. What What about you? What are your What are your <laughs> grand plans? You yeah, become the chancellor of A and T. <laughs> Man, if Chancellor Martin, give it to me. I'll take it. You know what I mean? But um, yeah, I guess for me, it's a little bit similar to what Isaiah was saying. Um, just being able to be able to expand my journalistic palette um, and be able to do things other than other than sports. Um, mm -hmm. I know. With uh, my publication, TrueBull.com, which you can follow us on Twitter at TrueBull with three L's, FR, and um, on Instagram at TrueBull. Um, and just, and being able to, um, yeah, just shameless plug, just a little shameless plug. Yeah. But um, just being able to do that, uh, I've been able to work more with news and more, you know, hard news kind of topics such as sexual assault and, you know, obviously school accreditations and different different parameters such as that. And also this summer, um, I was lucky to be able to have opportunity to work with um, CBS News um, this summer as an intern. And so I'll be able to um, do do something a little bit different than what I'm accustomed to, which I'm excited about. Okay. I'm trying to get a little bit more on the political scene and a little bit more investigative uh, reporting, and uh, hopefully that will set me up to get it, to try to find um, a job or set me up for um, be able to get into a good graduate school after I graduate in December um, 2019. So um, that's basically what I'm doing now. So mm -hmm. speaking of graduate school, you know, a lot of people debate on whether they need to go. And well, I'm a sophomore, and I'm one of those people. You know, I feel like if I have it all together, you know, I can just go out and get a job. But do you think graduate school should be necessary? Like, you know, in my in our particular field, I think it sets you apart, you know, just because mm -hmm. I feel like the industry is kind of changed in the sense where they want people to have advanced degrees. Um, and so when you're coming out of undergrad, you know, the world is in a sense your your oyster. But I don't think it is for, for journalism students, because like they might not see you as fully um like a full a full person to be mm -hmm. honest a full journalist just because you know you might have done some stuff for your school paper you might have had a couple internships but like 
uh, I think where the Roden Fellowship is unique is that you're actually covering stuff. I know I went to, and you're writing, you're producing uh, mm-hmm. videos, stuff like that, because I know, you know, if you talk to a lot of my classmates, like, they hadn't really done a lot of journalistic stuff. Like, they might have worked for right, a, um, right. a small small paper but like we work for espn so i think you you definitely have a sense of swagger you know walking into those spaces but i think i think it i think it is necessary but i wouldn't go broke over it um because you know that's lucky what i did and so i i I don't think that it's something you should go broke over definitely apply for scholarships try to get some sort of financial aid all that jazz um just so that you know it's like they're paying you to you know better yourself gotcha thanks for the advice and do you have any advice on students, you know, who's transferring from an HBCU to an Ivy League? It's it's funny that you asked that because I actually had a friend that, like, called me because she went to A&T and is now at a, um, a PWI. And she really, like, didn't felt like she didn't fit in. Um, and so she called me thinking that I have all the answers. <laughs> And that was at a time, that was like a time where I had just, I guess, found my footing, found my confidence. And so I think it, it, what I told her was like, when you feel uncomfortable, I think you should speak. Um, Just because like being in those spaces, they teach, I feel like they teach a certain way, they teach for a certain like student. And a lot of times it might not be for, you know, you. And I think because being in in a uh, HBC environment, everyone's so supportive. They want you to do well, especially if you show any inkling of like, you know, talent. yeah, talent. Like they want you to do well. They'll push right. you. And I think at you know PWIs, you have to go get it. Um, and I think that's one of the things that HBCUs do equip you with that like go get it mentality. So I think just you know being in a different space. Um, and I think it you have to push yourself to go go get it. Go to office hours. Try to meet with your teachers. And if you find someone that likes you, you know, follow up on that relationship right. and make sure that it's more than just about journalism. Like my uh, covering art teacher, like he showed me, I told him like, hey, I, I got to go play basketball. And now he was like, oh, you, you like basketball? Goes into his phone and shows me a picture of his grandkid, like shooting some hoops and mm. his grandkid's like one. And I was like, that's adorable. And so mm. I think mm. it's like establishing that, you know, <laughs> connection with your professors and with your student and with your um, classmates as well, because, you know, going to columbia you know someone's going to be the head of the atlantic or someone's going to be working at the new yorker in like five years so just having that network and being able to reach out to someone if you know god forbid that you're you're struggling you're freelancing and you want someone to support you i think having a that network is is very important because mm-hmm. all these all these schools you know columbia you know, it, you know it's, some of these people are going to be like magnets oh yeah just because family pedigree oh yeah katie kirk's daughter is in my class (laughs) is that right yeah i had no idea like she was because i mean she's not gonna be like hey i'm katie kirk's daughter but i mean like someone told me and i was like oh snap like that's crazy like you're set (laughs) so (laughs) exactly yeah so that's crazy yeah yeah it's wild and then i was just thinking that throughout the whole network yeah that's just columbia yeah they've all these places where all these people i thought about that the other night we talked about this even just in passing, how a lot of these schools you're competing against are set up. I mean, like, I'm not saying all of them are set up, but it is kind of set up. I mean, Katie Kirk's dog is going to have to really work really hard to screw it up. I mean, she's going to have to like have a campaign to screw it up. You know? Yeah. Oh wait a minute, Isaiah, you you get to work with the Jelani Cobb, right? Jelani yeah, Cobb yeah, yeah. He's my master's advisor. He's great. Um, really, 
hands off. Uh, and I think that that's something that I definitely uh, needed because just from having that relationship with, you know, Mr. Miller and all my other editors with you, I think um, – it, it's better because you mean hands on ha- hands off no hands oh, off in oh, terms of off. like in terms of like so if you say you're gonna go do a story like i'm sure your editor was never like checking in on you like content like hey blah 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 i've had like some of my classmates tell me horror stories of like yeah they needed a draft by this day or they needed something or you know the professor would look at the work and be like this is trash like something like really over the top and i think one of the greatest parts about uh jelani is you know we have a relationship where it's like hey like i'm doing this i'm doing this like just keeping him updated rather than like him being like so yeah, yeah whether him being like a, a helicopter parent or something like yeah. that and so i i really appreciated that and plus johnny's extremely smart he's brilliant i mean if you walk into his office it's like a library he's a very avid reader and i think you know from having him both as a master's advisor and as a, a, a professor and covering race i think i've learned a lot um because he just pushes you to read he mm. pushes you to read so much he's like i said he's brilliant brilliant mm. Would you have gone to Columbia out, out of college? I mean, out of, out of high school? Knowing what you know now, would you have made different choices? Oh, out of high school? Mm-hmm. Oh, no. Good Lord, no. Oh, my God, no. I, I just think about where I was out of high school. I was still wearing sweatpants everywhere. I didn't own a pair of jeans. I was rocking the boot cuts like Donovan. Like, I don't, like, I I was not a fully Word. Fan. Word. <laughs> I had no no sense of of self like I I didn't really wasn't that big of a reader. I had like dropped off reading. I think going to Morehouse and you know getting a connection to that network. I developed some of my best friends at that school and I think and I developed like relationship with professors that'll, you know, serve me until I die. And so I think that I needed to go to HBCU to develop that sense of self, a sense of pride in my blackness that I did not have prior to, you know, going to Morehouse. Mm-hmm. Plus, like, I got a year to play football and stuff like that to carry out my hoop dreams. <laughs> you know, one of the things that Donovan and uh, and Isaiah, would, they'd always go ahead and just battle on oh, yeah. sports stuff, just battle oh, yeah. on sports stuff. And Isaiah's famous for flipping. Yep. Saying he was, he was for one team Come at the on beginning now. of the year and then flipping at the beginning. But that's okay. Uh, what what's our what's our KD? question? Right. Yeah, KD. Yeah, just real quick before you guys leave, um, Donovan and Isaiah, just real quick, what are your top predictions? Um, your top NFL draft picks, real quick. All right, cool. Well, obviously, Kyler Murray is going to go number one um, yeah. to Arizona, and they're going to start fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll probably trade Josh Rosen somewhere. Uh, obviously, it's going to be a defensive line heavy draft. Um, obviously, players Dexter Dexter Lawrence out of Clemson. Um, Quinn Williams out of the University of Alabama. Um, those guys are going to go very high. Yeah, and it's just going to be obviously Dwayne Haskins from Ohio State is going to go early. Yeah, it's just going to be a fun draft with a lot of a lot of good talent being able to go early. Um, actually, one HBCU player to keep an eye out on is Daryl Johnson from North Carolina A and T. Uh, he measures at six six, two fifty two fifty plus. Um, he's a really good DN. One D, one MEAC Defensive Player of the Year this past year. So. He's going to be, and he was also invited to the combine this year. So he's going to be a player that's going to be on a lot of a lot of draft boards. And we've seen what uh, the last two players from A and T who were invited to combines how they fared in the league, which was extremely successful. And Tariq Cohen and Brandon Parker. So keep an eye out for Daryl Johnson uh, from HBCU circles. Now, last year you spoke to um, Lamar Jackson. 
down at the. Yeah. Did you follow? What did you yeah. think? What did you think of? You know, you spoke to him back in the day when before he was what, right. What did you think? I know you followed him. What did you think of how he performed? Yeah, I think it was. I think he had a really good rookie year. I think he yeah. got a lot of really unfair criticism for the most part, especially from his playoff start against the Chargers. Um, you know, obviously it wasn't. Obviously, it was really bad, but I mean, he was also a rookie. I think people have to really take that into consideration that this this kid is only 21 years old playing against, you know, <laughs> vets that have been in this situation before. So I think Lamar is going to only get better. I think he actually surprised a lot of people with some of the throws he was able to make um, for the Ravens. And, you know, he, just the culture that he brings to the Baltimore as well. I mean, you got you got to realize, like, when he took over as quarterback, it was it was a couple of games. It was a couple of games in there where it looked like this new offense that Baltimore was going to be able to run and nobody could stop. Yeah. You know, so Definitely. I think that, and I think it kind of when I talked to him actually last April at the draft, I think you could you could kind of sense that hunger that he had um, to come in and do something impactful with Baltimore, especially consi- considering the fact of how he fell to almost out of the first round. He was literally the last pick in the first round. So I think that kind of fueled him to come in and make a statement, you know. Uh, that's he, he is where he is today because of that, I believe. Uh, so for me, I agree with Donovan. I think Kyler Murray is going number one overall. Now that, some, now that you know, you saw his measurements, 5'10", a little bit heavier, like, what, like 190, I think, you know, there's a proto – He's a prototype. You have two hundred seven. Uh, two hundred seven. Thank you. So he's a little bit heavier than yeah, um, Russell Wilson at the time. So there's now you know a prototypical uh, quarterback. You see who his comparison is. So I think he's going to go number one overall. I think number two is going to be Nick Bosa out of Ohio State. Um, and then like Donovan said, nothing but D lineman after that. Um, what do you think of the kid D-line. from uh, Ohio State? The quarterback from Ohio. State? Oh, Dwayne Haskins. I think he's really good. I think he he plays with a sense of swagger. He has a pretty big arm um not really can't really it's not as mobile as uh kyler murray though so i can see why you know arizona's leading to kyler number one overall but i think Dwayne haskins will make one coach you know very very happy i think where we are right now they may need to go grab him but he needs to be the giants yeah yeah he needs to be the giants yeah i think they definitely need For to go real. grab him but you know I, I saw maybe the Cardinals may trade Josh Rosen here. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why they would make that trade, but I mean, yeah. So okay, um, yeah, I definitely think that Kyler Murray he's gonna go number one in the draft, and I'm glad that he picked the NFL and you know, not the Major League Baseball. So I'm really excited to see him, and I'm really excited to be at the NFL draft on in April. Mm. Well, my, my last question will let you. So, who's going to be in the, uh, in the NBA playoffs in uh, in June? Who's who, who's going to be playing in the NBA playoffs? Warriors are definitely a lock, and I think I'm gonna go Raptors. Actually, if if Kawhi is barring really? any unforeseen oh. in barring any unforeseen injury or Kawhi just not wanting to play, which is you know, load management has been the story of his season so far. I think the Raptors have could cruise there. I'm not going to lie. It's either them or the Bucks. I don't think the Sixers have much of a chance. Not, you just completely disrespect the Sixers. But the Sixers actually have some of the most talent, though. Yeah, but not uh, on the bench. But not I don't think bench. I don't think they're going to do that. Yeah. I, the, the only reason I don't think the Sixers are going to make it is because Ben Simmons still doesn't have a jump shot. So in the playoffs, it's going to be really hard to win. 
yeah. with him not being able to shoot. Yeah. Um, so for my predictions, I'm I'm gonna go Warriors in the West, and then I'm gonna go with the Bucks. I'm gonna go with the yeah, Bucks. That's that's a great, um, that's a great in the East. In the East, I would have picked the Celtics, but they just don't have it together yeah. right now, yeah. and I don't you, think trust, it's going to be able to be fixed. Trust me, they're going to have it together in a seven game series. They don't even have it together right now. Well, they don't have to. I don't know, Mr. Rogan. Yeah. Yeah. Trust me. I don't know. <laughs> Seven-game series, all of a sudden you'll be stunned. When, when the money's on the line, you know, and you got a guy like Kyrie. Yeah. You know, because um, in Milwaukee you got the one, you know, you got um, Giannis. Giannis. And you got right. some, you know, other players. I mean, he's great. Yeah. But in Boston you've got Kyrie who is right now, He's but he's great. Yeah. He's great, and you've got those other guys generally, yeah. who are great. And I think what happens when the money's on the line, you know, and it's a seven-game series. So uh. You're not talking about we play here one night, then we go. No, yeah. we're going to focus on you for seven games. Seven games. They've yeah. already got Philadelphia's number. Yeah, okay. and, and I think they yeah. can actually have – they could actually expose Milwaukee. I mean, they lost, what, the last – game to Milwaukee and I think the last two games I think they beat them in the season series right but remember they went seven they lost in the seven game series to Cleveland yeah in the NBA finals yeah you know and all those guys are there yeah I mean you got a good point Mr. Roden I just feel like the addition of Miritich for Milwaukee yeah kind of kind of kind of put them in like a different stratosphere than the Celtics obviously the Celtics still got still have talent and they get it together they're going to be formidable but I just think every other, I just think every other team when you talk about the Sixers Toronto and Milwaukee got better and I don't think Boston has especially over the trade deadline I don't think they got better so it's going to be it's going to be tough for them we'll see the East is going to be oh my god I can't wait for those playoffs for that playoffs it's going to be amazing yeah the East is going to be a gauntlet yeah it's yeah it's going to be tough to make it out of there We'll sign off on that note. Thank you, Donovan and Isaiah, for coming to the show, and thank you for your advice. How can we follow you on Twitter? Well, you can follow me at my personal handle, at Donovan Dooley, at D-O-N-O-V-A-N-D-O-O-L-E-Y. And you can follow my publication, TrueBull.com, on Twitter at True, T-R-U-E, Bull, B-U-L-L-L-F-R. And you can follow me at St. Claude the Second. At S-T-C-L-A-U-D-E-I-I. And you can follow me at W.C. Roden. That's W-C-R-H-O-D-E-N. Or at Kareem. (laughs) (laughs) Flattered. And just before we close, I want our listeners to know that the application for next year's Roden Fellows class is live, and you can find it at ESPNCareers.com. On that note, Thanks for listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows podcast. If you have comments, tweet us at the undefeated hashtag Roden Fellows. I'm on Twitter at King Deja. That's K-I-N-G-D-E-J-A. This show is produced by Aaron Matthewson. Special thanks to Ashlyn Johnson and former Roden Fellows Donovan Dooley and Isaiah Smalls for being on the show. Shout out to Tarika Foster, Brasty, and the ESPN Digital Audio Content Team. I'm Deja Harrison, and I've been your host. Get all of the HBCU 468 podcasts, as well as The Right Time with Bomani Jones and Morning Roast by subscribing to The Undefeated on the listening tab of the ESPN app. Join us next week for another HBCU podcast, and don't forget to make The Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports and entertainment. Have a great week, everyone.